Welcome to another edition of Backstage at Lyric. This time we present an audio transcript of the Discovery Series session for Richard Strauss's Elektra. The Discovery Series consists of panel discussions with the singers, directors, and conductors from the Lyric Opera season. There is usually one session per opera, and they generally take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. For more information on the Discovery Series, including ticket information, visit lyricopera.org. And now we hear this Discovery Series session featuring music director Sir Andrew Davis, soprano Christine Gerke, soprano Emily McGee, and mezzo-soprano Jill Grove. Your host and moderator is Lyric Opera dramaturg Roger Pines. Roger. We have tonight a truly fabulous all-star four-member panel for you. Each of these four artists occupies what I would consider an exalted position among interpreters of the Strauss repertoire on today's international operatic scene. Our conductor, Lyric Opera Music Director Sir Andrew Davis, is also leading Simon Bocanegra, Werther, and Die Meisterzinger at Lyric this season. Our Electra, soprano Christine Gerke, made her Lyric debut three nights ago, having sung her first Electra at the Teatro Real Madrid last season. Our Chrysotomus, soprano Emily McGee, is singing her seventh role with the company. She appeared with us most recently as Elsa in Lohengrin. And our Clitemnestra, mezzo-soprano Jill Grove, is also singing her seventh lyric role, having been with us most recently as Amneris in Aida. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series Sir Andrew Davis, Christine Gerke, Emily McGee, and Jill Grove. Okay, before I ask the first question, a quick synopsis is needed since we have not done this piece in two decades. So here we go. Queen Clytemnestra and King Agamemnon of Mycenae are the parents of three children, Electra, Chrysotomus, and Orest. While Agamemnon is away fighting in the Trojan War, Clytemnestra takes a lover, Aegist. When Agamemnon returns home, he is murdered by Clytemnestra and Aegist. Fully aware of their crime, Electra lives only to avenge their, her father. She is unsuccessful in persuading her sister Chrysotomus to help her. Orest, who has been exiled, returns in secret but reveals his identity to the, ast- <clears throat> to the astonished Electra, who had thought her brother was dead. Urged on by her, he murders Clytemnestra and then Aegist. Electra is ecstatic, but she has only a few moments to dance in triumph before she dies. Is that all right? <laughs> That's pretty good. That was that's, <laughs> oh, that's, that's yes. what happens. Oh, okay. <laughs> really? I'm, I'm sorry. I know that. <laughs> in so. my defense, in Clea defense, I'd like to say that she does believe that Agamemnon killed her other daughter. So there oh, is Iphigenia, a reason. Iphigenia, right? Yeah. yeah. Which is so, a whole other opera. It's a whole right. other opera, but there is a backstory. Okay. That's right. She's not just a bad woman. But we eventually see Iphigenia on Taurus in the opera by Gluck, which we did a few years ago. Well, all, what I want to make clear from the start is something that our general director, Anthony Freud, has mentioned several times as, as our uh, director of this production, Sir David McVicker. I don't think it can be overemphasized, even if you're a novice opera goer, if you like great drama on the stage, if you like whether it's, uh, or whether you like great drama on film, great drama, period, this is the opera for you. Whether, even if the Strauss music is new to you, how can you miss? 
the, so panel, can we talk about the theatrical qualities of this piece that make it in a special experience for somebody who's very sort of theatrically oriented? Go on. <laughs> Chris, thanks. Throw me under the bus. Thank you. Um, no, it's it's really it's quite a remarkable piece. Um, you know, the music, even if you're not familiar with Strauss, and a lot of people tend to, although I can't understand it, but a lot of people tend to think that Strauss is very dissonant. Uh, I, I hear remarkable melodies within all of this, but even if you take out all of the music, the story, just the storytelling part of this, it takes an hour and 40 minutes, and there are movies that don't make any sense that are longer than that. The amount of action that is packed inside of that hour and 40 minutes is completely remarkable. And music aside, I dare you to sit in the theater for an hour and 40 minutes and not be enthralled simply by the text. It is, it's really quite remarkable. I mean, and there's, there's so many interpersonal relationships within this story. Uh, you know, the story is being told from the vantage point of Electra, but, you know, there's, there's the story with her and her brother. There's the story with her and her sister. There's the story that we start out with, which is between her and her father. There is the story between her and her mother. And, you know, the scene is loaded with such unbelievable emotion, and very often it's played as... Anger, anger, anger. But in fact, you know, this is, this is the only parent she has left. So that relationship is still there. And, you know, we've all been angry with our parents. If you say no, you're lying. Um, and, but we still love them. And no matter what they've done, they're still our parents. And so there's underlying relationships regardless of the events that have happened in this piece. So I, I find that you can't help but be drawn in to the drama of this piece, even without the music. Jill? Yes. <laughs> I agree. No, I, I agree. You stink. <laughs> no, I, I think that's totally succinct and absolutely right. I mean, yes. you know, yes. it's, just, it's nonstop. It's great. Yeah. Well, you really, you really can't go wrong. You have uh, the mythology of ancient times, layered Sophocles on top of that, layered Strauss on top of that. I mean, you have, it's, so, it's a, such a multi-layered work. You can appreciate it from, from any angle. And, and the truths that were true in the time of Greek mythology and the, and the Greeks and Sophocles are the same truths that we have today. Family is family and tragedy is tragedy. And, uh, and it's interesting because, of course, the, the libretto is actually a shortened version of, of a play by Hugo von Hofmannsthal, which Strauss took and, and, and you know, pruned it a little bit. Um, uh, uh, well, you know. Um, uh, and actually, it's remarkable because the play itself is an extraordinary kind of um, bringing of the, one of the great uh, Greek tragedies, one of the most extraordinarily powerful Greek tragedies, uh, into the world of this, you know, uh, the turn of the century... Uh, Austro-Hungarian culture, which was, you know, was Sigmund Freud was doing his stuff, and 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 the great Wittgenstein, you know, the great philosophers, and this incredible music. I, I've always thought I would have loved to have been around and had tons of money, uh, so I could, you know, go to to Vienna and and hear Strauss and Schoenberg, and you know, go to Paris and hear. Debussy premieres, the, the, the amount of different music that was going on at that period and, and you know, the Rite of Spring, all these things were all happening at that time. It was the most extraordinary sort of ferment. And, of course, the other thing is that, so this was a Hoffmannsthal play, 
And this is how I believe Strauss and Hoffman first sort of got together. And then, of course, they went on to an incredibly successful partnership of a librettist and um, and composer. And, and there are very very few parallels. I mean, I guess Mozart and De Ponte, um, the three great operas that they did together, and of course. Uh, Verdi and Boito, uh, who produced um, both Otello and Falstaff, but actually got together working on the other opera that we're about to open, which is Simon Bocanegra. Now, we associate this piece with such aggressive singing and orchestral playing, but this is Strauss, after all. And the other night at uh, the opening performance, I thought, oh my gosh, that's right out of Act Two of Rosencavalier. You know, so... Where do you all feel the most lyrically re- rewarding passages, uh, passages of the piece actually are? Um, all three of you ladies, you all have a chance, it seems to me, to sing, to use your utmost beauty of sound. Where, where do those passages come? And then, Andrew, I want to talk about where you feel the, most, the greatest orchestral beauty arises. Well, I mean, I don't think you can talk just in terms of the orchestral, because actually, it's the you know there are tender moments between the two sisters. Um, there are even moments between the mother and the daughter that, surprisingly enough, they're not they're rather brief glimpses, but there's the, you know you still feel that there. And then, of course, the the whole scene, the recognition scene, with um, uh, Electra and Orest, the you know the brother and sister, is incredibly beautiful uh, and I think that you know people when they think of Electra and they, you know, I've, I've witnessed and heard some performances of Electra where the kind those sort of lyrical moments tend to kind of not happen and I think they're very important you know for one thing the ear needs a rest <laughs> because the, because the, 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 so much of the piece is frenetic and I have to say very loud in the orchestra there are some uh, balance problems that are quite difficult to solve um, because it's actually one of the, I think it's the largest opera orchestra that was ever composed for, in fact. Got huge, you know, serried ranks of clarinets, basset horns, Wagner tubas, you know. Um, Ladies, are are there particular phrases that you just cannot wait to sing just because of how ravishing they are potentially? Um, And I'm not going to ask you to sing any of them, but if you can give us the, what, what um, your character is singing about when those ravishing phrases are sung. For, for me, it's fairly easy. Um, as Chrysotomus, much of my music is, is, is harried and nearly hysterical, and it's quite wordy, and she's trying to get a lot of words out. But when she gets to the section about love, is... When her when her heart and melody come through, wer hat uns je geliebt? And nun ist der Bruder da, und Liebe fließt über uns wie Öl und Meeren. Liebe ist alles. Wer kann leben ohne Liebe? Can you translate? It's, it's all about love. It's who has ever. It's in the duet at the end. So I have to sort of wait the the whole uh, evening for our duet as Chrysotomus and Electra, and we nearly cry every time <laughs> um, because she finally. It finally occurs to Chrysotomus as a question, who, who has ever loved us? Where have we ever known love? And now she is convinced that now everything will be fine because the brother is back. Um, and she says, and, and love is flowing over us like oil and myrrh. Who can live without love? And Electra disagrees. 
in a sense in that moment. But for for me, it's 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 when when the music when the drama is about love and when she's talking about her love for her brother or even for her love of her father. Agamemnon. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a dramatic phrase, but it's also at least the way Christine sings it is very full of love. And to me, those are the those are the phrases that I treasure the most in the piece. Christine and Jill. My, like uh, like Sir Andrew said, mine are relatively short. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have glimpses, but I, I think the moments when I'm really truly alone with uh, with Electra, where she lets her guard down ever so slightly to say, you know, just pleading with her, could just if you could help me make these dreams go away. I know you know the answer. And when she's, you know, she does. Chris, uh, uh, what's my name? Uh, Clyde Mester does have some very <laughs> lyric moments. Um, but they're often not sung that way. And um, it is very important for me, certainly. That was a big um, challenge for me going into this role, was to really figure out how to sing it and how to sing it beautifully as well as dramatically. Because there is, I mean, my thoughts and my character is very frenetic and, not, and just discombobulated. She just can't put two sentences together. But when she finally gets to string a couple together, they're, they're beautiful. So, yeah. I do have to say, um, on behalf of my colleagues, that you will not hear a more beautifully sung Electra than this cast. Often, it's true what Jill says, it is a piece that is sometimes defined by screaming. And understandably, there are 110 people in the pit. <laughs> However, there are such unbelievable moments of legato. This is, this is the same man who wrote Morgan, you know? And we have to start at the art song and don't ever forget that this is the same music. There's so much lyricism in this piece and there's so much beauty. And there are certainly moments, obviously, I mean, I'm, it's a long song, so I'm not going to hit you with all the ones that are big for me, but there's so many moments that are very powerful and very dramatic and they're very text-driven. But, I mean, this is sort of goes without saying. One of the most lyric moments in the entire piece for Electra is the recognition scene, and it's when she realizes she was con- absolutely convinced and told that her brother is dead, there is no hope, and if she was capable already of killing Clytemnestra, she would have done it. It's been a long time since this all happened. She's not capable of doing it. Otherwise, it would have been done. And Orest was the only hope. And even as she's trying to get herself ready and prepared to try to do this deed that she is incapable of, I feel that that's when her character starts to lose ground a little bit. And by the time he reveals himself, the rush of tenderness that comes over the both of them, it gives way to this incredible lyricism. And the orchestration changes the colors in the orchestra change so dramatically that it gives such respite because you've been hearing such dissonance and such power that, you know, when, when he comes forth and says, you know, the, the dogs recognize me, but my sister doesn't. And the first, I mean, she yells arrest, and then after that, it's just like, everything, nobody move, don't move. I can't believe this. Let me look at your eyes. And she's looking at this man, this grown man who used to be a child. The last time she saw him, he was a child. And it is so tender and it is so beautiful. So when people talk of this piece and talk of how bombastic it is, wrong. There are places that there are, but there are so many places that aren't. Yeah, and it's interesting that um, at that moment when she, he says, 
you know, the dogs recognize me, you don't, and she realizes and, and cries out arrest. Then there's a, there's a big outbreak for the orchestra, which is very turbulent to begin with and quite dissonant, which is like, an, uh, to me, uh, uh, the kind of ref- reflection, a, a depiction of the, of the kind of extraordinary mixture of emotion that, that this that Electra is going through. It's and it gradually calms down into this mood. The harmonies gradually kind of smooth themselves out until you get into this something that's... I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's one of the most beautiful tender moments. And I think these moments are all the more remarkable and, and moving because of the of the kind of dissonance and the turbulence that's in so much of the piece around them. There's a moment that I always wait for um, when uh, it's early in the conversation between Electra and Clytemnestra, and it's one of the quietest phrases I think that you have in the role. Um, Jill, what do you say? Do you say something about being a, a goddess? And then, Christine, you respond... Um, oh, I, plead the, I, yeah, I basically yeah, yeah. plead to the gods, like, why have you done this to me? Like, I'm, that's you know, right. Why am I so put upon? Poor, say, poor Clytemnestra. Yeah, and then the gods, why are you asking the gods, aren't you a goddess? Yeah. And, and, and she, she, she kind of means it. I mean, this is a family that has, you know, this is, this is an incredible royal family. They, they're gods, you know, in everyone's eyes, they're gods. And so in, in a way, there's, it's very easy to say it in a very mocking fashion, but in fact, this is a royal family and in, in Electra's eyes, she has forgotten that. That, in fact, this is a very proud family and there's no need for all of this insanity. She just has to be in control of it. That's the way we're looking at it anyway, which I firmly believe is a really good choice. Uh, and that it's, it's just so... It's very difficult because, in fact, he doesn't write it in a place where it's easy to be quiet. He writes it in a place where it's very dangerous that it could become very pointed, uh, he he ends up. It's up on a G sharp at the top of the staff. Sopranos hate G sharps on the top of the staff. So if any of you are composers, don't write those. Um, but it is it's a very difficult note to make a pretty sound on. And uh, you know I I think that Strauss is a I mean he's a brilliant brilliant man. He wrote he wrote vowel sounds and notes because he knew what colors were going to come out of them. And it, it colors the text, no and, matter what you do. And he was married to a soprano, which poor, helped him. Poor with, man. Yeah. <laughs> poor man. Uh, now, the piece is based on uh, Hofmannsthal's adaptation of the play by Sophocles. So I wanted to ask our singers, did you read the Sophocles play? And if you did, did it help you? No. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't specifically. This is a treatment of the play. It is a treatment of, and then it's a treatment of another play. So... It, for me, it was more important to pay attention to the text that is in the score, and that's the story that we're telling. I did read. I, I did read the play. Um, I, I can't say that it really colored anything, um, either that I didn't really already know. Or, but like Christine, I sort of stick with what is given to me on the page and, and fill it in from there. I haven't read the play exactly. I sort of read the Cliff Notes version. You know, <laughs> I read a, a more about the play, and you know, you, I think you need to to do the best you can to, to get all the background information that you need, but I never read Sophocles word for word. So Sorry to say. <laughs> Andrew, you've come to this piece after having a lot of Strauss in both your operatic life and your symphonic life. Has there been anything in the Strauss repertoire that you've done up to now 
that prepared you for this piece, or does it, is it so completely set apart that nothing would have prepared you? Well, that's very difficult. I mean, I've, I've conducted, actually, I, I, I sort of added them up. I've conducted nine of the Strauss operas uh, over the years. Zalame Electra, Rosenklavelier, Ariadne of Naxos, Die Frauen of Schatten, uh, Arabella, Die Schweigsame Frau, oh, uh, Daphne and Capriccio. So, and, and that is a huge range in time, of course, um, but also in sort of style and taste, you know. I mean, he... Uh, but And the fact that, you know, you go from Electra... And the interesting thing about Electra, one of the many interesting things about Electra in my mind, is that uh, harmonically it's the furthest, it's the wildest he ever got. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Electra was composed the same year as Schoenberg's Erwartung, uh, and I feel that, you know, the, this is the closest the two composers ever came together because it's, they both, it, both pieces inhabit a very surreal kind of world. And I don't know whether any of you know Evartung. You might have seen it at the Chicago Opera Theatre a few years ago. It was done in a double bill with Bluebeard's Castle. Um, but it is, you know, it's a world where you don't quite know what's happening and what isn't. And there's a sort of sense of that in Electra sometimes. But the fact that Strauss could then say, "Okay, that's good. Now, now, now we'll write Rosenkavalier," you know, which is in some ways so many, so so such a world away. And then Ariadne, which is again a piece that tries to be kind of 18th century and or something in feeling, and and Frauen Schatten, which is this sort of mystical um, world of, that's so strange and yet sort of spellbinding. Uh, he, it was, it's a remarkable canon. The, the, the Strauss operas. Um, and, you know, he himself was uh, most very famously said on one occasion, I'm not a first-rate composer, but I'm a first-rate, second-rate composer. And that's, frankly, <laughs> frankly, rubbish. Um, uh, you know, um, there was this false modesty. But, um, and, you know, people... He was, he was such an incredible orchestrator. Um, Case in point is the Alpine Symphony, which is a great favourite of mine. But it, when it first came out, it was kind of poo-pooed by the critics. They said, oh, it's just sort of a series of picture postcards. But actually, if you do it right, it's much more than that. It becomes like a mystical journey in what the mountain means and what you take from it. Um, uh, but he's, he said to himself about the Alpine Symphony, he, said, he wrote to somebody and said, I now feel... I am a complete master of orchestration. He said, I write for the orchestra as a cow gives milk, which I thought was <laughs> sort of just, you know, just flows out of him. And actually, you look at some of these scores, I, it always amazes me, you look at some of the scores and see how many notes there are on any given page. And you think, just writing the bloody things, you know, it's incredible. I, 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 he was a real genius, um, and, and the legacy operatically, but also orchestrally, is extraordinary. The great tone poems, you know, they, they are a huge part of the repertoire. Now, Emily, like Andrew, uh, Strauss has been crucial in your career as well. You, you told me, uh, when we talked initially about Chrysothemis, you told me some very interesting things about what makes her stand out in your mind as far as the kind of singing that you're asked to do in relation to the other Strauss ladies that you sing. So could you expand on that a bit? Uh, well, it's, 
oddly enough, I have sung a lot of Strauss in the past few years. I've sung everything. For, I've sung Daphne, Salome, Ariadne, Kaiserin, uh, Capriccio, Countess, the Marshallin, and Chrysotomus. Maybe I missed one. I don't think so, but... Um, and it's been, it was never really a repertoire that I planned on doing. It just sort of started and I continued with it. But it's been the most extraordinary journey because every, every one of the roles is, com- in, my, in my mind, completely different f- from, a, a, from a purely vocal standpoint. You can't, you there's maybe a bit of similarity with the Capriccio Countess, for example, with the Marshallin, or a little bit of Arabella. Oh, that, that I missed one. I missed Arabella. Yeah. And uh, um, maybe there are some similarities, but for example, if you, if you sing Ariadne, which I have sung, and I know Christine has sung many times, and you say, okay, I love singing Strauss, I'm, I'm, I'm going to look at the Kaiserin in Die Frau Schatten. And it's the same sort of voice type, but it's a completely different vocal style. It's a completely different um, animal in, in, in all ways. It, I, the only thing I can liken it to is I feel like when Strauss went to write an opera, he, it's like he just took paint and splashed it on a canvas the way he wanted the world of that piece to sound. And then he wrote the, the vocal parts sort of in that in that world of harmony and, and range. And it's the most extraordinary thing to sing his works because every time, every role you do, it's a, it's a completely different universe. And, and it never is fully learned. It's never fully explored. A bit like Wagner, you know, you can keep, keep exploring, keep digging, keep finding new ways to help him paint that picture. It's fascinating to me. Andrew was talking before about wanting, you know, wishing that he had been around back then in the, near the turn of the century when mm-hmm. these pieces were premiered. I would want to go back to the time when certain Strauss operas were premiered just to hear one particular singer. Her name was Margarete Zemes. She was the first chrysotomist, but she was also the first marshalin and the first Zerbinetta. <laughs> this three different vocal types three roles all created by the one singer, which is inconceivable to me. Um, Christine, you sang your first Electra just about a year ago, and Jill, this is your first Clitemnestra. So um, our regular attendees to the Discovery Series know that I always find it very interesting to ask people how they built up to the point where they thought a particular role, a particular challenge was coming at the right time. How did you know that these particular roles were coming to you at the right time? Uh, I, for a while, I've always known that these were in my future, um, and um, you know, gosh, they everything just kind of lines up, and the opportunity comes, and you say, "Okay, I, I think that's a," you know, especially here at Chicago Lyric, where you know I worked with Sir Andrew a number of times, and I feel very comfortable and confident, and you know, um, that. He knows me, and he he knows what he's hiring. Um, you know, I'm not 65 years old at the end of my career. You know that he knows. What yeah, I'm, well, you know, you know, we decided to typecast her as the witch in Hansel. Well, Girl. yes, there is that. <laughs> so I would say he knows me very well. Um, you know, but things just sort of build, and it just is a natural progression, I think. If I can just say, Jill, about you, that the thing that I think is so marvelous, um, and it is that. You know, you you now sung the second 
of, of two uh, Strauss roles that I think, think are sometimes sung mm-hmm. by uh, singers who are perhaps not in the, the prime of their careers, uh, namely Chrysotomus and al- also the, 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 the nurse, the Amma in Frau Neschatten. And, and, you know, w- w- we wanted to get you for these roles because we knew you would really sing them fantastically and not sort of scream your way through them, as, as is sometimes the case. And I do think, uh, I think when we did Frau Neschatten, that made, for instance, that made a huge difference. The way you sang that role was actually, it was the best, most beautifully uh, sung that I've ever heard that. And, and I think you can say, I think I can say the same about Clitemestra. So uh, it's, it's been a great treat to have you doing this. Blush, oh, blush, blush. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with Sir Andrew, truly. I mean, this is this is what we've been saying the entire time. Clytemnestra is usually a role that is taken on at a point in, in a woman's career where they're, they're sort of getting near the end. And for that reason, you rarely hear what Strauss actually wrote because what he wrote is difficult and beautiful. And... I can't stand the fact that Jill has such a good pianissimo. It makes me mad. <laughs> but I promise you will not hear it by somebody who's at the end of their career. So it is remarkable, really. Um, I sang The Baby Sister for a very, very long time. And again, like Jill, since I was 24 years old, people have told me that, you know, the big girl roles, I call them the spear and magic helmet roles, have been... <laughs> I like Bugs Bunny. Um, and uh, that they were in my future. And the question became, when? You know, when you're 24, you don't want to hear the words dramatic soprano come out of anybody's mouth because there is no 24-year-old dramatic soprano. Uh, And it was something that kind of terrified me, and using the words made me nervous because when do you take a chance and find out if, in fact, everybody's right? Because if they're wrong, you're going to hurt yourself. So... Absolutely. It's, it's terrifying, you know, and because of seeing it happen and watching people that I admired, because believe me, when you think that this is the track you're taking, you become very aware of the people who are ahead of you and watch every step that they're making. And I was 36 the first time I sang Chrysotomus, I think. Uh, 37 now. <laughs> uh, no, I'm 43 and I am proud of it. Um, but uh, I... I did my first production and I had a few more lined up and every single production I had lined up from there before the production they called me and said we'd like you to change roles and I said no no I'm I'm 37 I'm not gonna sing that are you crazy called again I'm 39 are you crazy I'm not gonna sing that no again I said listen this is not my problem they said well who are we supposed to cast as Electra I said that's not my problem they said actually it is because we can't cast you in this role anymore for the balance issues. So either you make the decision to step up and try, or you need to put away this stuff for a while because we can't cast you in the Jugendlich things anymore. You can't be the baby sister anymore. And so last year I was 42, and in my head I had a number of 45 as the time I should try Electra. I, I don't know why. That seemed like a perfectly round number to me. Um, but uh, it was made incredibly clear that I really needed to find a place to do this, and the opportunity came to try this in Madrid. And uh, I am very lucky that I had the ear of a, an amazing colleague and a friend uh, in Deborah Pulaski, and I shot off an email and I said, okay, 
because I had sung Chrysotomus to her Electra and we had discussed it. I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I think I'm crazy, but I'm going to do it and I need to come study with you. And she was uh, not available, but she said, send emails, anything you need, let me know, I'll call you if I can't answer you. A month before I got to Madrid, I found out that I was double cast with Deborah Pulaski. So that was terrifying, but amazing because I had the opportunity to do my first performances of this while watching somebody who had done this for who knows how many years. I'm not going to come up with a number. She'd kill me. But she has sung this role. She rolls out of bed and sings this role. Nobody knows this role better than that woman. And to have the opportunity to be in front of that, it made it a lot easier. So it, it turns out God tells you when it's the right time sometimes, you know? Um, I've heard you talk about Electra as being viewed so often as totally mad when she's actually the only sane person on the stage. Can you say a bit more about that whole view of her? Yeah, everybody hears things now. I'm the crazy person in the room for saying that. Well, I mean, we talked about the fact that this, this story is through her eyes. And in fact, if you look at what she is going through, she's the only one that's remembering what happened. Nobody did anything about the fact that her father was murdered. Everything has been sort of swept under the rug. People are living in fear. Nothing is right in their world. Nothing. And she is the only one that remembers what has happened, and she's the only one that she is certain she knows how to fix this. And it's by facing up to what happened. Does that make her crazy, or does that make her the only one that remembers and the only sane one there? You're right. Absolutely. You have a very interesting relationship with Electra, I think, Chrysotomus and Electra. Um, what is her general attitude toward Electra, and, and does that attitude change in any way in the course of the piece? That's a good question. I, I think that my attitude to Electra is, is in a sense, of course, we love each other, we're sisters, but we're all, she is, she is the one who is strong like a man. In, in, my, in my opinion, this opera is very much about women's role in the society. We can't get anything done without the man. We have no father there, we have no brother there. And Chrysotomus, I am the, you know, the, the typical woman, the proper woman of the time. I stay in the home, I keep my mouth shut, I don't, you know, I don't um, make any waves. But I know that Electra is stronger than I and that she can do something about it. But I'm also a bit angry at her because she spends all her time wailing and railing against society and venting her anger and screaming in anger. And therefore, she can't be of any help to me in my situation. Um, so there's a, it's quite a, I would say, quite a normal sibling relationship. There's a bit of love and a bit of anger and... Um, bit of murder. I'm so proud of my girls. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Um, and as far as it changing it in the course of the, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think in the end that I change my feelings so much towards Electra. The, 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 the change is, is forced upon us. And in the end, I, I end up a bit in the same position that she is. Uh, turning to the mother figure, um, Jill, you're playing a murderess, and you also, your character has a number of, uh, of 
qualities that I suppose one could call grotesque, but obviously you've got to make her human. So where does where do her humanity and vulnerability actually emerge? Well, hopefully they emerge throughout the scene. I mean, that's certainly my intention. Um, because, yes, she did murder her husband with her lover, yes. She thinks she had good reason to do so. She can't figure out for the life of her why she's having such a hard time now, even though she's racked with guilt and, and, and fear. I mean, she's frightened. She's a frightened woman. She is afraid of Electra. You know who will say and do anything. She will. Keep, she keeps talking about this thing that we don't need to talk about, and and also she's afraid of arrest. I mean, she's the one that sent him away, and when he was a child, and keeps him in exile and keeps him away. And his name is not mentioned in the house, and because because it is a typical. You know, she knows if somebody's going to come back and avenge their father, it's going to be him. Which is why she's so happy at the end of my scene when they come and tell her that she's dead. Um, but, you know, her humanity comes out of, she's afraid, she's just fear. And she has all this emotional stuff, whether or not something's actually wrong with her and she's actually sick, I don't know. I think she probably drinks a little too much. <laughs> she probably, you know, all that blood she keeps rubbing everywhere and, and, and bathing in, you know, the whole, all the vampires. You know, it, it, she is just a mess. And plus she's got this lover that has turned out to be a total... Uh, waste of anything. You know, he probably started out as a little boy toy and he has, you know, but now he's just this drunk that, you know, is totally messing with the daughters and, you know, is not in any way a good, I mean, her life is, has fallen completely apart. And so, and she just murders, you know, these sacrifices, just trying to put something up to the gods every night and every day to try to make these dreams stop. And, and it's guilt and she's just racked with it. Um, and she finally in that, the piece that the day that we see on the opera, she has decided to come down the stairs into Electra's world. First, you know, normally she comes in the stairs, they kill the maid or they kill the sacrifice. They bathe in the blood. She goes away. Electra's outside, you know, but for some reason, something makes her come down the stairs today to talk to her daughter. And so, and something makes her ask her daughter, you know, do you have anything that could help me? What am I going to do? And Electra toys her along for a while until she finally says, yeah, I have an answer. You know, you, you're, you know, your blood on the thing. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of humanity, I think, to play with. She doesn't have to be a grotesque character. There's also what I've never seen in a production of Electra before. There's physical affection. I mean, don't you? One of you puts your arms around the other. I, yeah, we both do. I initiate yeah. it, but yes, I, I think it. I mean, I think that was a you know directorial choice by uh, David McVicker, which I love because a lot of times it is just sort of this battling back and forth of these two women, and I think to play. You know, the abused child, the abuse, the abusive mother, or especially a daughter. I mean, there are some sick levels that you get into, I think, that you can play. And the fact that she comes down the stairs, that Clytemnestra comes down the stairs to ask her for her help and takes that moment to just like, oh, right, you're my daughter. You, I could, and she becomes a little frail old woman. And it's like, but touch me, hold me, you know, make them go, make it go away. And then at the same time, you know, you crazy woman, you know, I mean, I'll kill you. I mean, you know, it just, it's everything. It's great. 
But it's the same thing coming the other direction. You know, I mean, there's there's also we discussed earlier that, you know, there no matter how angry you are with your parents, there's still a bond there. But at the same time, the only way to get you down those stairs hmm. is to get you to believe that I'm in a good mood today. Yeah. And to do that and to get you to believe that that Electra is not in a place that she's going to be damaging or harmful to you, you know, and uh, there's, there's a, there is genuine affection and there's longing, but there's also a lot of manipulation going on there. And it may be um, actually, you know, daddy wins over mama in this case. I mean, the, it's, it's because clearly uh, Electra's uh, it was crazy about her father and, uh, and, you, and you feel that. Right away at the beginning, I mean, the, the, this motif, the very first motif of, 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 that you hear in the music is the Agamemnon motif. Which is, interestingly enough, the same four notes in a slightly different order as, as the motif at the end of Zalame, which is... Oh Have you ever thought gosh. of that? Same four notes, right. just in a different order. Um, that's what you call economy. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, well, if you're going to steal from somebody. But, yeah. but then, after the scene with all the maids at the beginning, when, when Electra first appears, the, the way she calls her father's name against this very somber motif in the brass, and then, and then it, it's... it's it's full of anguish, it's full of tenderness, it's full of power, all at the same time. It's an extraordinary moment, actually. And it always gives me a chill, standing there in the pit. I like that when I get chills. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, one of the things that Christine sings, it with everything in it, that real beauty of sound and the, and the sort of heart-wrenching pain at the same time so it's and and this is you know this is what drives her and what and what what and which is only eased by the killing of her own mother i have a question um about the whole idea of pacing that i want to address to all of you beginning with you andrew people don't talk about the conductor in relation to the way one paces oneself often enough, but there you are conducting this unrelenting piece for an hour and 40 minutes. How do you uh, sort of plan things in a performance like this so that you don't give too much too soon and so that you have a place that you can build on? Or has Strauss really done that for you and all you... Well, yeah, I mean, every composer does it for you in a sense, but uh, that's not to say it all to come across unless you have that have a very clear idea of that in your mind i mean i don't you when you study and when i study any work i don't i don't consciously say now this is you know climactic point number one this is i i i i, I do it more subliminally um you know, one hopes with years of experience you that kind of thing you you apprehend but it's very important and it's very important for instance in, and of course i you know this has been fascinating for me because I've been working on Electra and Simon Bocanegra at the same time, and they're totally different pieces. I said to somebody, well, after Electra, you know, which is like drinking blood, it's like, with Verdi, it's like drinking a glass of cool mountain spring water, you know, because... <laughs> but, but Verdi also has this great strength that you have to find in the music and, and a sense of uh, 
of, of shape, of architecture, whatever you like to call it. And that's, that's true of everything. But um, so it's, in other words, uh, uh, f finding what the composer has already given you and making sure you realize it. And, I, you know, it's, uh, as I say, to me, that's mainly in these days uh, an inner process that I don't consciously think about a lot. I just, I just perceive it and, and, and live and breathe it, I hope, by the time it comes out. But it's... Uh, that's what, and it's a fantastic thing. I mean, you you do this whether you're conducting a, a symphony or a, or or an opera. But of course, it, with the opera, everything ha happens on such a much larger scale. I mean, you know, <laughs> finding the structure of Electra, I think, is going to be much simpler than finding the structure of Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg, <laughs> the mm -hmm. third act of which is half an hour longer than the whole of Electra. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> For the three of you, is pacing, I assume with Electra, it's something you have to think about mm, constantly. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's obviously something that you have to think about. But, you know, the first thing that you do have to think about is, am I in good hands? <laughs> and luckily, I'm in incredibly good hands. But it's, it's a bit terrifying because if we're not on the same page, then it's, it's a bit terrifying because to try to pace this piece... You know in your head what you want to do and when you want to give and how much you need to conserve. But at the same time, if you are not... There's a line. Change of subject. There's a line that in rehearsals I try to find how close I can get to this line dramatically without going past it. When I get to here, I've given too much and it affects my singing. And it affects my breath and my energy is now going into my acting more than my singing and that can't happen uh first time i sang peter grimes i got to ellen's embroidery aria and i went about over here and burst into tears and couldn't stop for about 30 minutes that's going too far with this piece you need to get right up to the line and live on the line for an hour and 40 minutes and i'd like to say there are places where you can lay back and relax but there just aren't and uh in the end, all you can do is know that the text will carry itself and pray that your technique holds out. <laughs> but um, uh, luckily, thank you for my teacher. Um, it, it does, and you just have to... You just have to go straight ahead the entire time. I mean, I yes, you, you should have to think about pacing, but there's no time to think about anything in this piece. You start, and then all of a sudden, you're covered in blood on the floor. The end. <laughs> Curtain. <laughs> What about the other two rules? Radically different, of course, and without quite as much time on the stage. You especially, Jill, your time on the stage is so concentrated. It you know, is. There, it, I mean, there's not really a lot of pacing going on. You just, you go and you stop. I mean, you just, you know, you find that line of crazy and you buck up against it and you just do that for about 20 minutes and then I go have a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, you know, and I say, yay, I'm not Electra because she's still screaming. <laughs> And I'm in my room, you know, on my iPad. So, you know, and I also think, you know, and having, I will say, you know, to do a little um, compliment here, having been with Christine for a month in rehearsals, this woman never marked. She never didn't sing until people said, shut up. Stop singing. We know you got, we know, we know. But I understand why she does it. I mean, I get it. I completely get it because... Unless you practice, 
all, all of it, the breathing, the, you know, it takes a lot to walk around all those stairs and, and be on that set. And, and you can mark all day long, but it's not going to, it's not going to tell you, okay, I need to like make sure this phrase, I need to really ground this phrase because my breathing is getting high or whatever. And unless you just do it over and over again, you don't know. It's and a bit so, like training for a marathon. Yeah, you just do it. And yes, you're tired. And yes, and it's not about everybody else. You know, it's not about, yeah, it's not about us saying, yes, Christine, we know you have 18 high Cs. But it's about Christine and what she brings to the role. And which is what I find so remarkable because, you know, she dances that wall crazy, but she never goes too far. And, um, you know, and it's inspiring for me and I know the rest of the cast because we, she's the leader of our little team Electra. And, you know, if we will go as far as she will, you know, even though my role is, you know, 20 minutes, I will give 110% that 20 minutes to try to, you know, match this, what is going on stage. Um, but there's not, a, I wouldn't say to get back to the pacing, I don't think about, you know, I just tell the story. I try to just go out, tell the story, be as truthful as possible and call it a day. Now, Emily, for Chrysostomus, she has to have a lot in reserve, it seems to me, for the end, because at the end is one of the most strenuous, isn't that the most strenuous music in the whole role? Well, the, the end is just very different from the beginning. For, for me, personally, in many ways, the beginning is the most strenuous, because it, it moves so quickly. And it's the first thing, you, you come out on stage and you sing your heart out for five minutes, and then you run off stage, you know, and it, it's, that's the hardest part for me because you, you, you start cold and you, you explain your whole character in that aria and, uh, yeah, it's difficult. So the pacing for, for my role is a bit different and, but I have the added benefit that I get to leave the stage. And so, you know, I, I kind of think of my role as well as a, as supporting Electra you know, as, as, a, as a colleague, but also as a character. You know, my exposition is in the beginning. Then I can, I run off stage and I'm out of breath, but I can have a cup of tea. I can relax. I can, you know, do whatever, powder my nose. And, and then I can hopefully come back fresh for the next entrance. The only problem is that every one of Chrysotomus's entrances are full out. They're full of emotion and they're a little bit high strung. So the, the question of pacing for me is to, to try to keep settled. It's, it's the same thing. It's to not go... Chris Ultimus isn't the craziest character on the stage, but in her own way, she is. And it's to try to keep from, from getting so hysterical that you just can't sing anymore. And, to, and as you say, to save something for the end when I actually have to sing in duet with... With which, this force of nature, you know, but that's my favorite part. So, <laughs> which which is a fantastic duet. I think I I just love it. And it's, it's amazing. And it just comes pouring out, you know, mm -hmm. in a great long paragraphs mm -hmm. of, of of Strauss at his most lyrical. You know, we haven't talked that much about the production, and since time is running short, I do want to just ask all of you. I assume that David McVicker and his designer John McFarlane discussed the vision their vision of the piece with you at some length. So what sort of atmosphere were they striving to create on the stage in this piece, do you think? I think strangely, this is if you've seen it so far, uh, this might come as a surprise, but the big conversation that we had was about family. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that the set speaks for itself, and the set, it just... 
it explains what ruins, not just the palace is in, but what ruins and tatters this family is in. And, uh, you know, the, my biggest regret is that, obviously, I don't get to leave the stage, so I have no idea what the lighting looks like. I have no idea what the set looks like from the house. I've not seen any of it. I just started seeing pictures, and they blew my mind. Because being on stage and seeing your colleagues in a certain light and you know you can't possibly get the scope of what's actually happening and the first day that we had rehearsal when Jill came out with her retinue I literally almost had a heart attack the costumes are so spectacular and I I laughed because someone said well they're so grotesque and I was like well kind of in a good way I mean if that makes any sense you know but it's just it's everything is so exaggerated and astonishing and rich but a mess you know and again this speaks to the family um so i mean it's so yeah and i I think it really does actually the 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 world of of that uh, you know between between the wars uh, i mean not between the wars but pre pre first world war in going into that period which was so turbulent anyway it's this sort of expressionism this kind of surreal quality that the costumes have in spades, and I think that that really adds tremendously to the overall the, the kind of sick feeling of the of, of of the whole drama. Now, Christine, you you look in this role. Your costume is sort of standard Electra, really, but Chrysotemis is totally different. What what did did John talk to yes. you about um, about that? <laughs> Did John talk to you about the dress and what he was um, was thinking about for your character? Not, not in. I, I think it's 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 a, a creativity call. I think he was just trying to create a, a special place and time. In a sense, it was a bit of a mixed um, a mixed style to maybe take take your mind out of a certain place or time. Yeah, and also the way my costume, your costume, your role, my costume struck you, your costume struck me, was that it, it, it does reflect your character in, in, in the sense that, you know, you dress n- normally. Yes, in, 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 I still in, have in, a pretty in, dress. In, that's I, right. I haven't in, been banished from the house yet. In comparison to everyone else, yes. you, you know, it's a pretty dress, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. Uh, um, wouldn't go on to go to the ball in it. But, but it, <laughs> so it represents your... You're you're being torn between these different worlds, and yes, you want true. to be a normal woman and have children I and want all that, to, and, yeah. and yet you're not. So it's and it's also my position in the house a little bit. Yeah. I'm still yeah. in favor. Yeah. In right. the, the conformity you know, she has to. I'm doing my the people. right thing, yeah. so I still get the pretty dress, right. sort of. Yeah. And then, and then taste Cle- level and, might be. You know. And then Clytemnestra has. A, I love it. A, quite the costume. Now she costume. does have quite the costume. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I met with John last year while I was here doing, doing Aida, and he mentioned to me that he would, he would like Clytemnestra to be bare-chested, and how did I feel about that? I was like, well, (laughs) I think the question is how you would feel about that. Um, and so we started talking about his idea, and his idea is sort of, that southern Mediterranean, the more tribal sort of thing. And, you know, this woman is very, you know, she's kind of tribal. But she does have so many superstitions. And, you know, I mean, I for me, that her costume makes perfect sense. You know, it's, it, it is elaborate. And it is over the top. And it is, 
it, uh, she, it's everything she is. Um, it's a costume. It's a mask. Her makeup is a mask because, you know, you don't want to see the real her. You don't want to see, you know, who she really is because she's trying to forget who she really is. And, you know, but but I got to tell you, you know, I love that costume. I mean, you know, it's Halloween so all the time. So the boys in the cast. Yes, very true. I have had so many crewmen come up to me and they're like, well, hi, Jill. <laughs> I'm like, well, hi. I don't know who you are. Hello. So, I mean, you know, it's really fun. I love it. I think it's great. Um, Christine, it, it seemed to me when someone told me about this, amazing that you're doing the role barefoot. How did 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 it take you a while to decide, or did oh, no. you know from the you knew from the beginning? Oh yes, that you wanted? I, I took one look at the set and knew that it was going to be. I don't want to say safer. It would have been safer with shoes or without shoes. But for me, there's so much running around. There's so many sort of darting movements, and there's a lot of climbing. It's on a rake, and you know the idea of being for an hour, singing this for an hour and forty minutes on its own is it takes a lot of energy. But standing on a rake. You know, it's fantastic. We love rakes when we're in the audience because it gives the audience a, a perfect view of everything that's happening rather than a flat surface. But try standing on an angle for 40, an hour and 40 minutes. I have calves of fire. <laughs> and the idea that I... Does anybody do yoga in here? Okay, so, you know, can you imagine doing yoga in shoes and not being able to feel your toes on the floor to be able to really balance yourselves? To me knowing that I can dig my toes into the floor because the set is uneven. You know, it's not made of actual rocks. That might surprise you. <laughs> it's not. It's not. But uh, it still is uneven. And being able to... You can't look down, you know, because contrary to popular belief, I actually look at the conductor occasionally. And it, I can't do that while I'm looking at the ground. So in order to be able to feel what's happening underneath me, I prefer to be barefoot. In fact, I asked to be barefoot. And they were happy that I asked, but it was my question. The surface of the set, does it give a little? I mean, in what places, does it feel like? In places, you know, some of the rocks, I mean, everyone can attest to this, some of the rocks are sort of made of foam, but some of them are hard. And you never quite know which one you're going to step on. So you kind of, that's, that's another reason I really am happy that I'm barefoot. Because I, I, no matter what happens, I, my balance is there. Um, did David work with the three of you on a particular physicality in these roles, or did he just leave it up to you how you wanted to move on the stage? My, I think he kind of left it up to us. He might have a suggestion or two. I mean, you know, there were times he had to sort of remind me not to be young, but, and, you know, my, like I just wouldn't move my hand that fast or I wouldn't dart that quickly. I would dart with a little more age. But other than our physicality, he left that up. He was pretty free in how letting each of us sort of find our own organic yeah. style, don't you think? Yeah, he he let it develop quite naturally yeah. and wanted it, our characters to be a part of us. Right. You know, yeah. He d didn't establish a certain style that we had to follow. But we also, I, I think it, it was a boon that we had David to uh, allow us to do these sort of things, but... This is actually a cast full of real actors, and we changed things up so many times. You know, we'd do a scene, and he'd say, that's not working, do something else. And we would do something completely different. Well, that's not working, find a different physicality, okay? Uh, so, And we would change things up on the spot. And, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, but for me, that's such a joy to work that way because you find things you never expected. And often, when those sort of things translate to the stage, they're incredibly exciting because they're not the thing that you expect coming. 
There is one moment that has always perplexed me in this piece, and it's the very end. And so, Emily, since you are the last to sing in the opera, I wanted to ask you how you view that con- the conclusion of the opera, because there is that gigantic door, and you're calling for arrest, and that door, you're locked out. What does that mean Well, there's not a great deal of explanation as to what exactly that means. And I think that it's a good thing in an opera production to have a little bit of mystery, to have a question that goes unanswered. What I feel in this production is I feel very much like I am the new Electra. After all my harping on her about you know, all the things that she's done wrong and how she's keeping us from being allowed to leave the palace. I have actually broken the rules by, by talking to her, by, by visiting her, by going to see her. And I, I feel like there's, it, there is a, and should be a bit of a question mark on that scene. It's, it's, a, it's a mystery. Why, why does Orest lock Chrysotomus out of the palace? I, you know, we don't know much about their relationship, actually. But I, I think the feeling is, is one of a, of a question of what's going to happen. But that's how I feel in that moment. I feel like, oh, now I can understand her. Now, and, and my life is over. My fate is now decided. Well, and we do know that the future of the remaining members of the family isn't too happy either. Not, <laughs> not a great ending. Not, no. not a nice and, ending. And so the last we see, Christine, of you, you have done your dance of triumph that lasts for literally seconds. Thank God. And, <laughs> and then you collapse lifeless. What in your mind, what does she die of? I think that the easy answer is to say joy. But I don't know that that's actually the case. I think that she gets so frothed up by the emotions that come with the release of knowing that it's done. It's done. It's been years. You can go any number of ways with this. It's been years. It's done. But she didn't do it. And she's still there with the axe. And I think that all of that time, as much as she knows what's right, she knows that revenge has to be taken, all she wanted to do was be with her father. And I think in the end... As much as you can say, I, it's funny, my husband is uh, not a musician, and he saw the piece for the first time on opening night, and he said, I was so sad when you died. And I was like, that's interesting, because in fact, it's kind of a really happy moment. And that's the cool thing about it. There is the joy of the release of knowing that it's done, and she gets to be with her father finally. For me, that's, that's what is, is going through her head. I think she has a heart attack. Boring. But I think that's what happens. Because it's such a, 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 it's such a, a moment. It's dancing, 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 dancing. Crazy, 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 crazy. Shing! Boom. There's, in the music, he wrote a heart attack. If you could look at what a heart attack looks like, that's what it is. I think. You know, um, <laughs> Flatlining. Uh, you, you know, sitting in the audience watching... And listening to all of you, I'm sort of numb by the end, and I'm just sitting there. So I can imagine how this piece affects all of you when you're living with it every day for six weeks. So do you, all of you, feel it invading your person and your life? 
how do you avoid taking it home with you? Well, <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Like, no. <laughs> no, I try to leave the crazy lot. at the house. Yeah, we laugh a lot. Yeah. This, this has been one of the funniest guests. <laughs> And we hang we out laugh together. Constantly. You know, we it's, all go out after. It's absolutely you know. true. I, you know, oh. you consider the nature of this piece, and there was more screaming laughter in the oh, rehearsal totally. period. I, I suppose it's a way of just coping. I th- yeah, really. I think it was just a release from all the dark. Really, yeah. we actually got in quite a lot of trouble in the rehearsals for cutting up. Yeah, yes. Totally. We, Jill and I decided that they're never going to cast us in another opera together again. Because the second it wasn't about us, we were dancing or we were talking or we, you know, and so. So the way to so the way to wind down from Electra's to go out and have a beer together and that sort of... Oh, that's just the way to get your larynx back down. Yeah, exactly. That's just <laughs> how you that's like... That's what the beer does, yes. Yeah. <laughs> just one big happy family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just all the way. Another um, day at the office. The, you know, this is why I love the Discovery series because you, all of you here and all of you who listen online are getting the inside story which I think is really quite a privilege. And I want to thank the four of you very much indeed. This Electra is, it's beyond magnificent. I mean, it will be one of your great operatic experiences. So I hope all of you enjoy the, the performance hugely. I know you will. Thank all of you very much. Thank you for listening to this edition of Backstage at Lyric. For more interactive content and to purchase tickets, visit lyricopera.org.